This week, we welcome Michael Figueroa, Independent Executive Security Advisor, to discuss CISO challenges in a changing world. In the Leadership and Communication section, board members find cybersecurity risk an existential threat. The little things that make employees feel appreciated, Chipotle and Target CEOs repurpose talent for cyber and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. You know what the biggest cyber risk is for your organization? It's the browser, and your users are in it all the time. Every time a link is clicked, untrusted web code enters your network and runs on your machine, exposing you to risk. What if users had full access to the web, but never touched web code? You'd have all the benefit of the web and none of the risk. That's why Authenticate built Silo. It's a browser built in the cloud that runs all web content in a remote, isolated browser that never touches your network or device. With a simple click, your organization is fully protected from all web exploits. Find out more at securityweekly.com forward slash authenticate. That's authentic number eight. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 160, recorded January 27th, 2020. I am your host, Matt Alderman, here in Colorado. Joining me remotely from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island is my co-host, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Hey, Matt. It's good to be here. Some more gray hairs on my head from technology-related issues that I deal with. On a daily basis I, now that I decided to become CTO. <laughs> I, I have plenty more to give you if That's you would right. like them. <laughs> and you're flying solo today because Jason's at sales kickoff, so he's somewhere I warm, I think. Yeah. It happens. Yes, it does. And they're usually someplace that. warm, which is pretty funny, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, it's cold in Rhode Island, I know, because I'm flying in there later mm -hmm. tonight. So I have my winter 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 jacket ready to go. There you go. Join us at InfoSec World 2020, March 30th to April 1st, 2020 at the Disney Contemporary Resort. Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World Main Pass or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2020 and click the register button to register with our discount code. We will also be recording at InfoSec World 2020, and you can use that same landing page, securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2020, to book your micro interview. All right, let's get to our guest. Michael Figueroa is a security community thought leader with over 20 years of experience in business, government, and nonprofit organizations designing security programs, building information sharing collaborations, and advising state and federal government executives. He has worked with organizations across market sectors spanning from the size of very large enterprises all the way to early stage startups. Michael, welcome to Business Security Weekly. Thanks for having me, Matt and Paul. It's great to see you both. Nice to have you on the show again. Nice to have you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been a little while. But so I think most people know you for the advanced cybersecurity 
Uh, you give us the background. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks. I, I was the um, president and executive director of the Advanced Cybersecurity Center um, until recently, where uh, the ACSC was really focused on building stronger sort of executive information sharing and uh, effective practice um, networks. So operationalizing your executive network to help build stronger understanding of how the cyber threat landscape is changing and um, really kind of a support group for how to better do security and sort of um, uh, learn from each other um, through the practices that um, your peers are doing. So uh, that's where I spent the past couple of years of time. Like my bio says, I was doing some startup work before that, started a consulting company and geez, about 12 years ago, I was a CISO. So um, I've been doing the security gig for a while. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things when we were preparing for this is You've talked to a number of CISOs. You start to really understand some of the challenges they're facing, which I want to talk about in broad strokes. But the other interesting part that we extracted out was there's a big difference in large enterprises and small business CISOs and some of the mm -hmm. things that they're facing and some of the different things. So let's start kind of at the broader level. What are some of the big issues that CISOs in general are kind of facing today? Well, I think one of the big challenges is really just the the service provider landscape that CISOs are dealing with now. Uh, even just in the past five years, the number of providers that are serving any one organization is exploding. And that's for small organizations as well as very large organizations. The, the scale of the um, supply chain within a given organization's ecosystem is just so complex that it's it's really, really difficult just to get a handhold on that. And because things have changed so quickly, uh, even all these years later from the 20 some odd years I've been in security, we haven't been able to keep up to the the um, how broad the situation has really gotten. And as a result, I think we, we still haven't defined what the fundamental sort of standards of how to do the security management job well are. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I, I'll talk to CISOs uh, and I actually asked about a year ago, I asked some CISOs, you know, when you move from one organization to another, how often do you feel like you're just starting over? And uh, I never got an answer to that question that said that they felt like the program was in good shape um, mm -hmm. to what they're going into. And I think part of that is just we haven't really established what that common understanding of what a good, healthy security program looks like. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, want to go. Well, I want to go back to your first point because I think this is very relevant today, as we have more and more services to choose from and perhaps less control over how the business is acquiring them, you could end up with three versions of the same solution that are all SaaS-based, right? So you got one uh, IT department here, one over there, one over there. They're all using three different cloud backup solutions, right? You've got developers mm -hmm. that are using a whole host of tools that are not even on the same source code repository. I mean, that even comes down to finance. If they've got applications they're using, you may end up with three different versions. And then how do you enforce your security policies, processes, how do you do detection? How do you get a handle on all of that? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Paul. One of the things that I've uh, heard from CISOs is uh, we've talked about the shadow IT problem, and we, we that that's been talked about a lot. But the fact matter is is that security, the security lead or security executive, does not own purchasing decisions or sourcing decisions. Yeah. Those are all going to be owned owned by the businesses. And so we might talk about these um, cyber hygiene arguments where you need to inventory your systems, or in this case, you need to inventory your services, but there really is no effective way. There's no solution right now for being able to do that. I spoke to one CISO who um, they, it was an organization that disallowed the use of uh, Amazon uh, for uh, Amazon Web Services for whatever reason that they um, had to disallow that. And the CISO, a new CISO had come in and decided that the only way to understand how much Amazon Web Services was actually being procured by the organization was to go to Amazon and say, okay, we're going to start procuring services from you. But first, I need to know all of uh, yeah. the email addresses of my employees who you have, who you're, you're selling instances to right now. That's crazy. So I ran third-party vendor management for one of the large national banks, and it was under a decentralized purchase environment, like you said. It's massive. to Just to inventory, I used to have to go, I went to two places. I went to the general ledger system because I wanted to see mm -hmm. what accounts payable was paying. Who are you paying, right? And that gave me at least the vendor, but I didn't know what service they were acquiring because some of these uh, providers offer many services. The second place I go is to the expense system because who's putting the stuff on a credit mm -hmm. card? That's the only way to find some of this stuff. It, it's really difficult. But finding it is one thing, but actually taking action to correct it is a totally different thing, right? Because look at a, a ticketing system. You may have an in-house written ticketing system. You may have two or three that are spun up you know, uh, in a SaaS offering. And each of the groups are going to come together and go, well, we had different requirements that the internal ticketing system didn't require. Then you've got another team going, well, we use the internal system because it satisfies our unique requirements. And then it's a project to get everyone on the, it just doesn't happen overnight. No, it requires a lot of coordination because it's not just security's responsibility. They have to work with finance. They have to work with legal teams. I mean, this is a multidiscipline problem mm -hmm. across most organizations. The CISO can't just walk in and say, look, we, we, we're going to do a security review of all the vendors. Most of them already exist in the environment. Mm -hmm. You got to work with legal and finance to negotiate anything you can do there. Well, and I think that's that's exactly right, Matt. The, what I've been saying for the past couple of years is really where the CISO job has evolved to is not so much as the hands-on security resource that uh, a lot of us remember being at one point in time, but CISOs today and, and security directors, depending on the size of the company, they're coalition builders. That's where they're finding their most success is they're not there trying to figure out the answers to all these things. What they're there to do is they're there to build their partnerships and relationships with the business owners, with the systems owners, to begin to understand a little bit about how their environments are operating, but really to help them understand how they incorporate cyber risk into uh, their general business risks. And I think that that's where we see a lot of this movement as far as the success in being a CISO going to is they're never going to 
completely understand the environment. And so this whole concept, this fallacy of this belief in control is, is never going to be realized. It's really going to be a matter of helping others manage the risks and making sure that they're informed well enough in order to do so. Yeah, one of the things I hypothesized uh, a number of years ago is that the role of the CISO would shift more from a hands-on operational role, more to what I call the governance role. And what you've described a little bit is that governance, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's working with other parts of the business. It could be internal and or external, because think about all the external relationships we were just talking about, right? That requires some level of oversight, governance, and coalition building as well. And so we're definitely seeing that trend start to pick up. I think I did this at, in late 2015, is that the shift would start to happen. You're actually seeing it now in, in the field? Yeah, that's it, that's what we were really seeing, especially at the larger enterprise. When you look at the, um, let's call it the Fortune 100 level. And the Fortune 100 level, the security executive is managing such a significant team of security resources that th- those resources are going to be focused in various different areas for managing the risk uh, as they see it. And so, and then what the security executive's position is is no longer um, really working with those resources in the same way that um, we might have expected to five or ten years ago, but really focused on that lateral and upward uh, visibility as to how how their resources can be leveraged in order to improve the functions of the business. The interesting thing there goes back to sort of one of your original points, Matt, or one of your original sort of comments was that that's not exactly how things are working at, say, the mid-enterprise level. At the mid-enterprise level, we're still seeing CISOs very, very much hands-on and very um, much more running generalist organizations where they're sort of scrambling to gain control because they, the organization perhaps is moving too quickly or there aren't enough leadership resources in general to really uh, have an effective governance model that they're really forced to sort of um, be in the firefight more than really managing that governance. So what I find interesting is that if you're an aspiring CISO or an active CISO, right, the skill sets can vary widely between whether you're going to a small to medium business where you're uh, probably a lot more hands-on versus a large enterprise where it's probably more communication, governance, leadership, that coalition building discussion. Uh, those are you know, two very different skill sets. Yeah, they are, Matt. Uh, when I was working with CISOs at the various different levels, it was it was really interesting to me from, you know, just an anecdotal perspective. We end up seeing lots of studies going around talking about CISOs as an infographic perspective. But when you really start digging into the weeds, you look at the very large enterprise CISOs. And again, that's the Fortune 100 level. A lot of times they don't have traditional security backgrounds. Uh, they really inherited the CISO role by virtue of the fact that they've been with the organization for a long time and have risen up into sort of maybe a technology management level or an operations management level and have sort of incorporated themselves into that CISO position naturally by understanding the business risks 
and being able to translate those business risks down to technology execution. At the mid-market and the really at the entry levels of CISOs, that's really where you're seeing that elevation of the ladder where I was a security analyst or I was a architect or um, what have you. Maybe I was in the help desk and I've steadily moved into this sort of management role where I find myself in the security director position or even an early CISO position. And where my comfort level at that uh, those organizations is is still in understanding the tools and being able to you know hack some code together, script up a solution when things aren't working right or something like that. Versus at that large enterprise level, it's a completely different aspect of what security management is. Where security management is more about that relationship development. So it's really diff- difficult to compare one CISO to another CISO when those um, dependent skill sets are so different. Now, what about communication? I mean, even at the small to medium business, I, I still have to be able to communicate to the rest of the executive team on what some of those risks are, I would imagine, in order to get budget to implement solutions. Is, is communication, that communication capability still a common thread? Or do you not see that uh, at the small to mediums. I'm just curious because we, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about communication, but how important is that at, at the small to medium CISO uh, level? Oh, I think uh, communications is still probably the number one critical um, skill of any security program lead. Uh, at the at the small to medium um, level, it's I think it's actually a really underplayed skill because at that level, the CISO or the um, director really needs to be in a position to advocate for themselves. And unfortunately, they're generally not in the good position to do that simply because they're not engaged in the right meetings. They're not engaged in the right um, sort of opportunities to influence the discourse. When you take a look at just the how business is run or how interactions with the board are happening, um, boards for those levels, for example, they're not having all these various different committee meetings where they might be pulling the CISO in. They're generally going to be focusing on revenue and expenses and might not consider security to be much more than a half an hour conversation every quarter um, versus in the large enterprises, you do have those sorts of um, more mature governance models where uh, at least there's an opportunity to elevate uh, what the, uh, elevate the needs. So when I've spoken to um, a number of the CISOs and say um, the technology area, I hear a lot of challenges with how business decisions are being made that end up having an adverse effect on their teams, and they're still forced in that position of adaptation versus preparation. Michael, do you see other CISO roles being created? Because I can see this. I mean, I do see this in larger organizations, but I think it's largely on the vendor side and more for product promotion. But in larger enterprises, having a global CISO and then maybe different business units, geographic areas, however you want to slice it and dice it, there are other CISO-type roles whose primary objectives mm-hmm. are to facilitate communication in addition to doing the nitty-gritty of helping people get work done, right? Taking down barriers, acquiring technology, getting permission for things too, but then also communicating with all of the different areas of the business, but having mm-hmm. that trickling-down effect where they're in different either regions or departments. 
Yeah, I, I have seen that, Paul. Again, I, I um, what I've seen is a lot of inconsistency in how it's applied. And mm-hmm. I, I still think we're making those decisions based on um, our own individual guts versus any sort of standards. But um, I, I point to, I'll, I'll talk about two different organizations, one in financial services, one global financial services company ha- does have a global CISO and then has um, individual CISOs that are heads of various lines of business. So right. in that case, the CISOs, the, the line level CISOs are responsible for assessing cyber risk within a given business segment versus the global CISO is responsible for building that um, almost committee of CISOs to figure out what needs to be elevated up as a common concern. Um, but then there are other organizations, uh, I, I'm thinking about one very large tech company. They ended up having, um, I believe four separate CISOs through the course of rapid uh, um, acquisition, merger and acquisition activity. Right. And those CISOs were also individually responsible for different uh, execution areas. But because the different execution areas uh, didn't have a lot of dependencies on one another, they ended up creating their own security programs and then through merger and acquisition created all kinds of chaos when it comes to who's going to be in control of what common solution in order to reduce uh, the duplication of effort. Yeah, because some of the things that I think we see a sharp contrast are, you know, IT security versus your product security. Right, Mm -hmm. IT security, when you've got to deal with user desktops and you've got tens, maybe a hundred thousand or more. Like to me, that's a role in and of itself to manage the security around that environment. And you don't want to take away from the focus of the security of your product, right? What are the Mm -hmm. privacy implications? And we think of large companies like, you know, uh, Google and Amazon, like Ring, for example, the security of that product is not, is really not relevant to anything to do with IT security. A lot of it is privacy. A lot of it is roles, access to data, reporting to all of the, your customers, as well as uh, internally to legal and all that stuff. So that I could see be that being a very different role from IT security. Yeah, and I think that um, Paul, the I, I use security um, vendors as as one of my extreme case examples and the challenges mm. of a CISO because a security vend uh, when you're a CISO for a security vendor, you're sort of being pulled in both directions, right? You've got to manage security right. of the um, internal operations, but then because you happen to be the expert in managing security for the internal operations, you get drawn on by the product teams on how to actually secure the product, and then make use of the data that's being collected from the product. And so they, you end up in this scattershot sort of perspective, especially at that lower end, uh, lower to mid-market sort of security right. vendors, where you have you end up accepting a lot of responsibilities because that's what the company says it needs in order to grow. Right. But it really is multiple jobs. Yeah, and you have three different audiences in that particular scenario, right? You've got your internal IT, you've got your product security, and you've maybe also got the external interface with your customers, right? Who need mm-hmm. that expertise of a CISO maybe to consult with them on uh, the actual sale and usage of the product. And when we look at larger companies, they have this uh, field CISO. I feel like the field CISO is more yeah. of a customer-facing role, correct? Yeah, and um, I, I point to my friends over at Rapid7. I happened to yeah. catch one of their job postings um, uh, like four months ago or something like that, where the, it looked like that's exactly what they were doing. They were hiring a sale, what I call a sales CISO, yeah. right? Uh, you, you've got your, your super sales engineer 
right? And then you actually have your internal CISO um, uh, who, who's responsible for operations. So I know um, a number of companies are moving in that direction. I've worked with a couple that, uh, you know, they, they brought on first that sales CISO and then realized they really did need operations support right. as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's another dimension in here too. We didn't even talk about the physical security side. If you think about the IT vendor that's also a manufacturer has manufacturing plants all over the place. There's a physical security component too that gets added as another dimension into some of these CISO roles. That's, a, that's another one that's hard to manage on top of IT customer and your own product. Yeah, and I've seen that as well. Uh, unfortunately, over the past 20 years, the it was almost like 20 years ago, physical security and information security were talked about hand in hand yeah. uh, a lot more. And those of us who were, you know, sort of raise, rapidly raising in the profession in those early days ended up having responsibility for both and developing the competencies for them. Uh, you just... You, we don't see that anymore. And physical security is really kind of getting left by the wayside, unfortunately. And I think part of it is just because so much of our solution space is moving to be outsourced, uh, be it in the cloud or some other way, that uh, we pretty much sort of expect physical security to be covered unless we're in, say, a, um, a defense-oriented uh, military-industrial-based space where it really is checked on by, you know, primary clients. Yeah, because physical security of your primary facility where you may have thousands of people going in and out, right, you'd have awareness programs and security guards and things like that. But now you've got a data center off in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> There's not thousands of people going, hopefully not, in and out. If that, that would be a concern, right? But less and less do we have those large data centers because we're hosting it up in the cloud. Yeah, the, the problem that I've seen is just that uh, we start talking about those satellite locations. And these days, uh, 10 years ago, we were talking about satellite offices. Now we're talking about satellite desks, right? Yes. Um, either in a, a co-working space or uh, a, in a remote worker's home. Um, you can't review all of that anymore. Uh, I remember when I was a CISO, I actually went to go visit a satellite site just to go check out uh, how they were handling the, the simple usage, uh, uh, server usage at the site. And I found a server rack in a unlocked closet with an air conditioner, a window air conditioner on top of the, the server rack. And, uh, you know, of course, first question I asked is, how are you dealing with water? I was just going to um, ask, where's the water going? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, when, when you look at it from that perspective, you can't be at all those places anymore, right? right? And a lot of physical uh, security systems are actually being provided by the uh, um, uh, the owner of the, the of the building, yes, right. Um, and so, when you're a low level, a low market to mid market company, you actually don't have a whole lot of say in how that stuff is actually working, right? Versus if you're a large company, you look at some of these uh, big buildings in, in Boston. If you're getting a floor, you might have a little bit of control. If you're getting 10 right. floors, you probably have a bit more. But if you're getting a sublet, you don't have any control whatsoever. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting because where we rent, we rent a large percentage of the space. And so we can lobby for things like we want security mm -hmm. cameras. And magically, you know, now we have... And it wasn't just us lobbying, right? There was incidents and there's other businesses that were also asking for the same thing but again if you put that on a much larger scale if we've only got a few thousand square feet in a hundred thousand square foot facility we don't have much say
Exactly. And, and every facility is going to be different, mm. right? Um, uh, of what kind of control you can have and what are you going to do with it? And then once you have all this different variation of, of really data, how are you going to actually develop a feed so you can de- even detect when something is going on out of the ordinary? It's, it's yeah. just part of that broader uh, diversity of um, uh, access problem that, that we're, we're dealing with. And, and look, we all know the target attack. This is, this is, this is what happens, right? When you have lots of facilities, you're, you're man, trying to manage your IT systems, your physical security system. There's so much on the plate of a CISO that an attack like that can happen because physical access may not be on the top of the list, but then it led to an IT system compromise. And here we are, right? So, I mean, a lot of definite challenges when, when you think about the full scope of what some of these CISOs have to do. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of challenges there, Matt. I but I think that our challenge is really being able to um, own it and help our uh, business management understand what it means from a risk oriented perspective. We can try constantly to gain control of all of that, but if we're really to face the reality of it we're not going to get control of it. We're, um, no matter what level of organization you have, you are not going to have full control over how your um, resources, your assets are being accessed, being either through physical, through um, digital, what have you. And so what we really need to do is have that stronger conversation of what is it we're capable of um, dealing with today? What is it we want to be dealing with tomorrow? And what is it we're willing to accept? And when something goes wrong that's within our acceptance area, then we just shrug and say, okay, it went wrong. Has it changed anything? And you make the governance decisions based on that, not based on some idealistic vision that the CISO is going to come in and fix everything. Yeah, it becomes a risk management discussion with the business. How do I mitigate, accept, or transfer risk at the end of the day? And if if we're having those conversations with the executive team and with the board, we can probably be in a better position to really focus on what's important based on what is the most risky things that we want to address. And that's exactly right, Matt. Uh, But even... Before that, I think that we need to correct the communications within our community at large um, because we tend to recognize and understand the problem space. But on, on the other side of the coin, we end up going around blaming each other for our failures, right? And I, I tend to think that there's there's a bit of toxicity there that makes it really difficult for us to have that conversation of being able to say, look, we made this decision. It was the right decision at the time. It resulted in this. And now we realize that it was a bad decision. And that's okay. That's natural in business. But I think that in general, we tend to be, and I say we as the security professional sort of community, we tend to be pretty um, rigid when it comes to what is it that we need to protect. And when we make arguments around cyber hygiene and, and things like that, we, we say these things, but we know we don't really practice it. So why are we making it so hard on ourselves? That's a good point. It's a very good point. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we were the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> yeah. 
Which is so typical of our community, right? I mean, uh, we we know everything, we see everything, and we respond to everything. And generally, we came into our positions because people would point their fingers at us and say, "Hey, you fix something," and we generally were able to fix it, right? So we 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 developed a certain competency to respond to crisis, and we generally have responded pretty well because we continue to raise up the ranks and the the corporate hierarchy. But, you know, every once in a while we screw up and we need to understand that that's not really, you know, a big deal. <laughs> but right. um, at some point we need to shift our mindset a little bit on that. Yeah. And let's hope we can learn from our mistakes and improve uh, for, the, for the better for the future. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think that that if we can really turn around into a healthier sort of perspective on that, then that'll actually make the community much more accessible, right? And we'll be able to uh, really uh, sort of affect change as far as attracting new talent to be cybersecurity professionals or attracting a multidisciplinary ownership over um, cyber risk. Those are both critical areas of, of concern we, we all know, but we're not going to solve them if, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly telling people who don't understand what we understand that they're screwing us up. Yeah. Well, let's hope that this interview starts that dialogue. <laughs> well, anything I can do in order to, you know, try and advocate for that sort of shift. Um, I, 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 it's a pleasure to be able to do that. I just hope we can start pointing to some real successes in the area. Yes. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt and Paul. I um, always love coming in. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. 